We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello podcast listeners, I'm Connor and welcome to this bonus episode of Intelligence Squared. Today we're featuring a debate from our friends at Intelligence Squared Germany and in partnership with the European Council on Foreign Relations, they staged the debate the West must engage, not confront China. It's a really fascinating debate and we hope you enjoy it. Now let's go to the episode. Hello everyone and and welcome to this Intelligence Squared and European Council on Foreign Relations online debate the West must engage, not confront China. I'm coming to you from this slightly dark location in Berlin and looking forward to the discussion today. I'm a fellow with the German Marshall Fund and ECFR. And joining us today is Anastasia Lin, human rights activist, actress, ambassador for China policy at the McDonald Laurier Institute and senior fellow at the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. And alongside her will be Kerry Brown, Professor of Chinese Studies at King's College London and Director of the Lao China Institute. And now we should have the results coming of the first vote. We now have uh, numbers at 63% in favour of the the motion, the West should engage, not confront China, 21% disagreeing, and 16% don't know. So Anastasia has a a bigger task on her hand to uh, win over opinion. So speaking first for the motion, it's Carrie Brown. Carrie, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you very much. And it's a great privilege to be here. Thanks for Intelligence Squared for arranging this. So the proposition is we should engage and not confront. And just to be absolutely clear, uh, engage does not mean that we are going to be big buddies. Engage does not mean that we are completely aligned. Engagement does not mean that we have any deep feeling for each other. I mean, what I think engagement means is self-interest and pragmatism and being able to selectively choose places where we have to work with each other, where we can work with each other because of our own self-interest and areas where, in fact, it probably will be confrontation. The thing that is important about the way this motion is worded is that engagement isn't not compatible with sometimes confronting. A positive term is usually way more kind of inclusive than a negative one. So you can have your cake and eat it with this. 
you can engage, but there are times when there will need to be tactical differences and tactical disagreements. And some of those would be pretty deep. And therefore, I think that it's just rational and sensible to go for engagement until there are times in which over certain issues you can't agree. And then maybe uh, metaphorically you can have confrontation, though I think even you know, kind of uh, militarily that should never be an option. The second is that I will recognize, of course, that China has significant and massive problems. I mean, no one in their right mind would defend what's happening in Xinjiang at the moment. Hong Kong has been profoundly problematic. Uh, the Beijing regime's attitude towards Taiwan is deeply problematic. It's not an easy partner. This is not news. In 1972, when Nixon went for rapprochement to Beijing, he knew that pretty well, despite what he said some years later. I mean, it was very widely known that this was not an easy or problematic partner. But back then it was self-interest, and that has not changed. There are very clear reasons why we would want to work with China, because it works for us. What are those issues? One of the problems when we talk about China today is that it is very divisive and gets people's emotions wound up. But I would really ask you to look at the three particular issues I raise and think beyond your emotions. We can all tell terrible stories about China, and there are plenty of negative stories to tell. What we really need to have remember is that on the specific issues of climate change, sustainability, and global health, which we're experiencing now, it really needs to be engagement, not confrontation, before we actually not only harm those we oppose, but ourselves. Climate change. This is many, many reasons why on climate change it works to engage with China. Firstly, it's hard to see how we're going to solve the problems that we're experiencing now, with every year seeming to get hotter than the year before, if we don't work with a fifth of the global economy and a fifth of humanity. It's not really going to be very possible to solve this if we are antagonists. And therefore, in this area, this issue, I think it's a no-brainer. We have to engage. This is actually supplemented by the fact and reinforced by the fact that in recent years, broadly, the Chinese government, in terms of policy and approach, has been pretty positive on this. It supported the Paris 2015 Convention. It is trying to eradicate carbon from its economy, even if this might be an impossible thing to do. And it might be that it's just producing rhetoric, but it's better to produce the right type kind of rhetoric rather than the wrong. So China, I think, in this area is, for many reasons, a very, very powerful partner and an important one for our self-interest. Sustainability. Again, exactly the same arguments. It's not very easy to see how we'll be able to confront some of the enormous problems of sustaining our environment and being able to support our economies, particularly at the moment, if we don't work with the world's second biggest economy and probably quite soon the biggest economy. It's particularly important because this is something we have all invested in when things were a little easier. Maybe we were under misapprehension in the past that our engagement with China was going to lead to a wonderful result where it would become like us. That hasn't happened. It doesn't look like it will happen. But in many ways, the investments that we've made, not material and financial, but in terms of human engagement, in terms of Chinese students coming into our universities and many, many 
people going to China, in terms of the enormous effort that governments, companies and individuals and institutions have made, it seems to me particularly a pity that we would cut that off just to confront at a time in which perhaps there are real positive results that could come from it. We don't know the outcome to this story yet. And if we choose confrontation, we'll be writing a conclusion that maybe doesn't need to be written. Everything is to play for for change in China, and we should get back some of our human investment. And finally, pandemic. It's pretty clear when we see the enormous challenges that the world has had in the last year that we cannot deal with a pandemic in a nation state way. I understand the very serious arguments about where and how this pandemic originated. I completely understand the passions that have been aroused by the issues of how China initially managed the pandemic. There are lots of unanswered questions which the World Health Organization is trying to get to the bottom of at the moment. Maybe it succeed, maybe it won't. But the brute fact remains that without China's partnership, in vaccinations, and in being able to deal with future pandemics, maybe even worse than the one we've just confronted or in the middle of confronting, it is very hard to see how we will be able to be effective. Unfortunately, viruses are not nationalistic. They don't care where they go for or who they go for. And they will therefore not be respecting the kind of national boundaries that a confrontational response will basically involve. Finally, I suppose it's important to really acknowledge that engagement needs to be selective and intelligent. There are plenty of areas where it's probably no longer possible to engage. I understand that. There is probably a tactical decoupling, and this is happening all around us, and the Biden administration will probably not differ greatly from the Trump administration. We know way more about what we're dealing with in China now, and with other partners, it's not that these issues are solely those that relate, relate to China. These are generic issues. They also relate to other parties. But the issue is, although it might not be as morally wholesome as berating China and saying how terrible the stories are one comes across there, that in fact, confrontation will mean that we impact badly on two things that I think we shouldn't do. The first is ourselves. It would be an act of self-harm. It would be very difficult for us to achieve our goals in the three years that I've talked about, which are so important for our self-interest without working with China. And finally, actually for the people that we care about in China, who have a very complicated view, many of them perhaps, and who may not completely agree with the Western model, but also are undecided about their own government. We shouldn't write the end of the story for them by saying and imposing an ideologically and emotionally driven and simplistic view of confrontation just because it appeases our constituencies back here. We should be bigger than that. And so I absolutely say engagement is a no-brainer. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Kerry. I'm going to turn now to, to Anastasia to speak against the motion and a little bit on Anastasia Lynn's background. Uh, Anastasia is, as I mentioned at the beginning, an actress, activist and political commentator with a powerful story. Potted version is that in 2015, she won the Miss World Canada title and was due to represent Canada, the pageant in China. However, she was refused 
a visa and declared uh, persona non grata by the Chinese authorities for her outspoken views on the country's human rights violations, and her family in China were put under pressure to silence her. But they didn't succeed. Anastasia has appeared in over 20 films and television productions, often taking on roles that convey messages in support of freedom and human rights. And she's spoken and testified on some of the leading political stages, too, including the Geneva Human Rights Summit at the UN, the Oslo Freedom Forum and testimony to the United States Congress, the UK Parliament and the Taiwanese Legislative Assembly. Anastasia, the floor is yours. It's my honor to be here to talk to you today about this very important issue. Today's debate asks whether we should engage or confront China. But the framing of this is deceptive. These options are not mutually exclusive. Of course, we need to engage with China. But honest engagement includes confrontation. So I would suggest let's reverse the question. At what point should we start to confront China? Do we confront China when it commits genocide against ethnic and religious minorities in a territory it controls? Do we confront China when it endangers global health by suppressing the news of this deadly virus and persecutes courageous Chinese who dare to warn the public about it? Do we confront China when it already exploited every multilateral international organization from the World Trade Organization to the World Health Organization to the UN Human Rights Council to suit its own political agenda? Do we confront China when it abuses the trade partners by targeting their critical infrastructure, stealing their intellectual property, while refusing to honor to fully open up its own market? Do we confront China when it exploits developing countries by lending them money they couldn't possibly pay back, then seize the strategic assets they put up as collateral? Do we confront China when it destroys the freedom it promised in an international treaty and imposes draconian law on the citizens of Hong Kong? Do we confront China when it threatens our national security by using Huawei and ZTE to gain access to our data and critical infrastructure as part of their information war? Do we confront China when it harvests the prisoners of conscience in China, their organs, and self-work transplantation on a massive scale? Engagement doesn't consist in submitting oneself to abuse. Engagement consists in asserting one's own value and interest in a respectful way. The West have failed to do just that. Let's look at some example of the recent confrontation between China and the Western countries. In 2018, Canada arrested Huawei's executive Meng Wanzhou after United States alleged that she committed bank fraud to evade sanction on Iran. China responded by arresting two Canadians, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. They're still being held as hostage in China today. And China didn't just stop there. They banned um, Canada's canola, soybean, and pork export in retaliation. Huawei's own action contributed to global instability, but it took its revenge on innocent Canadians. And this is not an isolated incident. China's hostages also include Australian business after Australia decided to ban Huawei from its 5G buildup and ask for an honest inquiry to the origin of coronavirus. China retaliated by imposing trade penalties on Australian exports from coal to wine. My position is this. The West did not initiate confrontation in these cases. We need to reject the view that our law-abiding actions 
has damaged an otherwise neutral and positive relationship with China. These seeming disruptions were Chinese Communist Party's reaction to these free countries exercising their own sovereignty. This has been going on for decades. Relationships were operating under the shadow of Chinese Communist Party's bullying. We have done everything we can to include China, to bridge China into the international system, and China has exploited everything. Yielding to China's coercion, economic or otherwise, will only embolden it further. Indeed, we need to hold China accountable as an equal member in the international community. What I'm proposing is actual engagement. The alternative is submission. And please don't believe that by standing up for human rights and universal values, we are imposing a Western value on a foreign culture. I'm Chinese, and I can tell you that we crave justice as much as any of you. We don't want to be tortured or suppressed, or being deceived of a deadly virus news,、um, many more than you do. The Chinese values are not incompatible with the West, but the values of CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is incompatible with both the West and the well-being, dignity, and rights of Chinese citizens. Chinese government signed and ratified the Genocide Convention and the Convention Against Torture, so on paper it doesn't reject these values. But the human rights abuses happening in China is not a cultural difference. But the West. Have not only stayed silent; it has fueled the abuses. Up until 2013, there are 300 re-educations through labor camps operating in China. They detain hundreds of thousands of prisoners without trial. In many of these camps, religious and political prisoners consist most of the population, and they face routine torture, even death. The camps are still operating today. They are not. They are now called prisons. And simply re-education centers or drug rehabilitation centers, the labor camp force labor system is a significant source of revenue for the Chinese government. And local government have a financial incentive to imprison law-abiding citizens in these camps, where they often make products for export. And the business of Western companies help create these financial incentives. The Wall Street Journal reported that in 2019, Western companies like Adidas, Coca-Cola, and The Gap are involved in the China's campaign in forcibly assimilate the Uyghur Muslim population in Xinjiang. They are at an end of a long and opaque supply chain that runs through Xinjiang. Shouldn't we stop this type of engagement, at least until? It's confirmed that forced labor is not part of a company's Chinese supply chain. The justification for appeasement approach used to be that China will slowly evolve into a democracy, but that has not happened. And while the West waits for this kind of transformation to happen, countless Chinese citizens perish in labor camp and prison for exercising their most fundamental rights. The Communist Party took over my country by promising prosperity, equality, and compassion. But as soon as they assumed power, the real killing started. From the early '50s campaign that killed my great grandfather, as well as destroyed the traditional Chinese social structure, to the Great China Famine that killed 40 million Chinese people. 
to the Cultural Revolution, then destroyed the moral and the trust between people, to the then money worshiping and destruction of religious and spiritual groups in China. The people in China, their lives have been reduced by the Chinese Communist Party today to mere existence. And that is what the Chinese Communist Party have promised the world. Thank you. Thanks very much, Anastasia. And, and thanks to both of you for being so disciplined with your time as well. I would also note that although both speakers have sort of taken on parts of each other's argument, neither side is arguing for pure confrontation or pure engagement. I think it's very clear what the different visions of this represent. So I hope when you come to vote, you, you see what the, the overall balance of, of the, the two sides of the argument does does look like as a result of that. I'm going to go to Kerry first with a question. Kerry, I think it's felt to many, especially in the last year, that this kind of systemic and ideological confrontation is the path that the Chinese government itself has now chosen. And that it's no longer playing out around traditional issues such as Taiwan or Tibet, but that, as uh, Anastasia mentioned, you might find your economy significantly damaged because you pulled for an, uh, you call for an independent inquiry into the origins of a global pandemic, or your medical supplies cut off because you didn't want to have a Chinese telecom supplier. Isn't engagement in these circumstances really just compliance or, as Anastasia said, submission or a denial of reality? Is this even a meaningful choice anymore? Or is this really now just a choice that the Chinese government itself has has made? Yeah. I mean, the Chinese government has uh, become more aggressive. That's true, because it's much more powerful. And on the whole, it's not surprising when entities become more powerful, they become pushier. I guess the second thing is that I don't think it's the same to say a China which is an ideological proselytizer or a China which is ideologically selfish and self-interested. If we're dealing with an ideological proselytizer, I would say that China is failing. It's not convincing anyone of its message. But what we're dealing with, I guess, is an ideologically self-interested partner, not someone who's trying to you know, kind of proselytize their ideology in Western kind of markets or Western systems but one that is very self-interested. And that's a very specific problem. It's not a real ideological problem then. The problem is that the world's likeliest, biggest economy in the next few years, China, is actually a very self-interested and kind of quite introspective entity. So while I can see people getting very, very fussed up by this idea of the hidden hand of China coming and wrapping itself around all of our kind of, you know, mental and ideological kind of chokeholds, I don't think that's really what's happening. We have to be intelligent in working out what the real risk is. The real risk is, I think, that we're dealing with a China which is not really that kind of keen on having others adopt its values because those values it believes are intrinsically Chinese uh, or Chinese communist, if you want to kind of be specific, and that it sort of doesn't really want a global role by by definition. It's not really the kind of global actor that may be a power like the US was in the past or Europe were with transferable and, you know, kind of values which you could have no matter where you thought you were. So I think that's a different kind of problem, not ideological kind of proselytizing, but really kind of a, just a geopolitically quite self-interested power. Thanks, Kerry. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv another question in one sense about an issue that can either can fall into one category or the other and i think maybe reflective of kind of the balance of what an overall approach looks like and that's the belt and road initiative um i'm seeing a question from uh, christian heidbrink asking how can the West engage with the BRI, especially since there are great reservations within the EU as well as the US. They both have their own BRI projects between Open Indo-Pacific and the EU connectivity strategy that might serve as starting points for cooperation uh, instead of confrontation. And I would again add a slight gloss to this um having seen a great deal of enthusiasm from certain places including on the european side to do precisely forms of engagement on on this the reaction over the years in terms of seeing how this has played out in practice has been to move into a much more kind of pessimistic view of of what looks possible in this in this area um and it does feel in some of these that the even even some of the spaces that are ostensibly areas of of, of cooperation have been felt to be really shrinking and, and the Belt and Road Initiative is, is clearly one of these um, as people have seen what's played out in, in individual countries. Do you still see something like this, Kerry, again, as as a genuine space for cooperation or as an external manifestation of all the more problematic elements of how the Chinese system works? Does that preclude this form of cooperation being being possible? And it'll be the same question to, to, to Anastasia on the Belt and Road as well. Yeah, look, I mean, as you know, Andrew, the Belt and Road is just sort of whatever you want it to be, it will be, right? That's the glory of it. It's an amazingly amorphous concept. I mean, firstly, for many years, we wanted China to say what it wanted, you know, in the Hu Jintao period, sort of like silent geopolitics from Beijing, always sort of wanting China to say a bit more what it wants. And now it's kind of said a bit more what it wants. And that's the Belt and Road. So that's what we've got. 
I think for some places, Pakistan, as you know, they have embraced it in a way that's probably rather terrified Beijing because, you know, there is only one thing more terrifying than hate, and that's love. And Pakistan's love for China is very deep and very terrifying. For other places, India, they're very antagonistic to it. I mean, I think the way to look at the Belt and Road, though, is to see it as an unavoidable answer to an unavoidable question. And that is that you can't have a kind of silo of the Chinese economy just sitting in its own space. And you certainly can't have an economy on its own sitting in its own economic space. Economic space is not with a border, right? I mean, it seeps all over the place and sometimes floods. And China, with the incredible economic kind of growth that it's had, uh, is now able to have an influence on others, willing and unwilling. And the key question in the Belt and Road is about one of agency. Who is really driving this? And I think the, I guess the sort of bad thing is that it doesn't seem that it's driven with as much kind of strategic focus as people were expecting. But that's probably the good thing too. This kind of, you know, terrifying kind of fairy story of, you know, like the evil kind of party in Beijing, kind of pulling all the levers and kind of controlling everything, controlling our brains and all the rest of it. I think the Belt and Road is a fabulous, fabulous example of the fact that this thing, if it isn't, if it exists, certainly isn't very functional. And I suspect the evidence is probably that it doesn't exist. And the Belt and Road, with its messiness and kind of, you know, lack of results in many areas, is a very powerful proof of that. And actually, sorry, Gary, I, I also didn't ask you to cover the who gets this right. <laughs> who gets it right? Also... <laughs> I, I can tell you three. Japan, because they do and don't say. I mean, they're really, really good. The DPRK, because they proved that one thing that really does work with China is moral blackmail. And Taiwan, because they proved that you can be very, very knowledgeable and actually succeed, as they had in the pandemic, but also create your own space. I think if you had a hybrid of those three approaches, you'd have something super realistic, because those three powers, I think, are absolutely masterful at realistic engagement but also knowing where the boundaries are. So I think they're a great model. Very interesting examples. Anastasia, the Belt and Road. So Belt and Road Initiative is predatory capitalism. China lends these country money and uh, sometimes send out their own workforce. So the financial loop is closed and build these, uh, the countries can't, can't possibly pay, them, pay back the money. Therefore, China then sees these infrastructures. That's China's global plan, part of it. And the intention behind it, although on the practice it might be very messy, um, just imagine if one day China do get into a war with the West, but these key ports, these infrastructure are all being controlled by Chinese Communist Party, how much danger does that pose for us? Um, and I do want to agree with Kerry on that Japan, and I would add also South Korea, has diversified their trade. Um, they have understood China, Chinese Communist Party, um, their strategy and their true nature. That's why uh, when China banned Japanese rare earth um, exports to Japan, Japan with their rare earth, uh, Japan, with a concerted effort, has seeked other markets and therefore made themselves safe. So I think that is the kind of initiative that countries should be taking right now. Thank you. Two, I'll stitch together. One, I also promised succinct questions should be prioritized. So there's a very simple one. How should the West deal with Huawei? And sub-question to that, actually, as well, and particularly since I see that it's from a former student of yours, Kerry, what is your take on Angela Merkel's engagement with China, especially in regard to her successful effort to have the Chinese authorities 
release uh, Liu Xia. Does confronting China work better when it's done behind closed doors? Germany, of course, still now virtually the single major holdout in Europe on Huawei as well, and some an element of which has been very bound up in a version of the engagement policy that which I, I think Merkel would kind of describe herself as as what's being pursued. Is this a success model, and and what is the what approach to Huawei in particular uh, should 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 be adopted? But um, where does confrontation, when it is pursued, work best in the open or behind closed doors? Kerry gets to start this one. Yeah, look, Huawei is a fantastic company. I mean, there's, you know, kind of everything is good about it. You know, it's economical and it's kind of got great kit and it's comprehensive. Uh, but there's one massive problem. It's Chinese. <laughs> so, I mean, if it were not for that single thing, we'd love it. We'd love it as a company. I don't know technology, so me kind of saying, you know, technologically what the issues are, I, I don't want to join the great band of other people who've kind of pontificated about this because I don't know. All I do know is that it seems that uh, since Australia's decision not to allow Huawei to uh, kind of bid for the national broadband and then America's decision and then the issues in Canada and now the UK decision and decisions across Europe, it seems that the tide has sh- changed. There is not the level of political comfort in having a company like tele- like Huawei in your, you know, kind of critical infrastructure, your telecoms infrastructure or elsewhere. So I think that decision has kind of been made and I don't think it'll be unmade. Um, what I would kind of really stress though is that Huawei is doing fine in Africa. It's doing fine in Latin America. And I mean, it's profits in those areas and of course in the domestic market are absolutely great. So it's fine. It's a proof that you can, in some sectors, and must decouple. This is a proof of intelligent engagement. We can deal with China with some companies, but not with others. And I think Huawei has obviously now become a company that it's not easy to deal with and probably won't be possible to deal with. Angela Merkel, I think, you know, for a kind of perspective of someone from the UK, I would see her policy as being towards China as being very pragmatic. I don't know whether it really makes sense to say that one should always be, you know, kind of doing things behind closed door and low key. Different models work. There is no set model. Sometimes a very public approach might work. Sometimes, you know, a a more private approach. I mean, we don't really communicate enough with each other amongst allies about, you know, how we can deal with these very distressing issues. The only thing I'd say is that, you know, enormous amounts of diplomatic capital were expended in the past on particular individuals, and yet the structural issues have not changed. And rights activists and those in China, I mean rights lawyers, are having a harsher time now than ever before. So I think we need to kind of really wonder what we weren't doing uh, or what we could have done, or maybe that there was nothing we could have done in the last 20 years. Because certainly, you know, 20 years ago, I don't think we would have thought we would be in the position we are today with the kind of rights situation in China. Thank you. Anastasia? I think, first of all, Huawei is not just a company. Huawei, we could look at it as an arm of the People's Liberation Army. China's, to the very least, the national intelligence law requires all Chinese companies to submit to a coordinated national intelligence effort. And so anything that comes out of China, it's almost like having an umbilical cord tied to the Communist Party, Chinese Communist Party. So we couldn't just naively look at it as a simple telecom company. And just look at China's reaction to Canada's arrest of Meng Wanzhou. She's a company executive. Then China immediately had this hostage diplomacy. That's how important Huawei is for them. 
Huawei is part of their information war. If Huawei do happen to have a say in our 5G buildup in foreign countries, then for our next generation, our data, our military secrets, and everything is exposed to Chinese Communist Party, and we don't want that. Thanks very much. So we're now moving to closing remarks. I realise that actually, properly, the way around this is supposed to go is Anastasia will will give her closing remarks first, and then uh, Kerry. Um, so I'm if 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 you're ready, I'm going to go straight to you, Anastasia. You'll have one or two minutes just to give your closing thoughts on on, on everything. Okay. Kerry said that ideology shouldn't be a part of how we look at China. But for me, ideology is at the center of how we should treat the Chinese Communist Party. It sustains all the motivation behind its action around the world. It's not just a state that is acting in its own interest. There is a fear. Even at the most prosperous time of Chinese Communist Party, its fear for losing the legitimacy of its governing of Chinese people is at the center of all the decision-making. And one other point I want to make is that please don't mistake Chinese people with the Communist Party. Kerry said that Chinese people are a complicated bunch and that there are a lot of nuanced understanding. But what I want to say is, have we really heard enough from Chinese people? Communist Party censored internet, censored speech. There is no freedom of press really over there. Over this pandemic, I've heard so many Chinese people coming onto the internet, telling how angry they are about Chinese Communist Party and how they cannot get their message across on the international stage. And while China uses the racist rhetoric to say that any criticism against COVID-19 is racist against Chinese people, that is not true. So in order to hear what China really want, we need to listen to the Chinese people. And for that to happen, we need to first get over the Chinese Communist Party. Thank you. Thanks very much. So, Kerry, your final remarks in favour of the motion. Yeah, I would only say two things. The first is the proposition was pretty unambiguous. It was that engagement with China was better than conflict. So that's what I've addressed. And I'm glad that the kind of overall sort of framework that this whole discussion has been in seems to have supported that. I mean, I've heard a lot from Anastasia about how there are areas where we're going to have to engage. What we are doing at the moment is having a debate about where those values are, and that's right and proper, where those areas are, and that's right and proper. But engagement is the thing that we need to be involved with. Conflict is going to be lose-lose. And it doesn't matter if we frame that conflict in terms of you know, a kind of final victory over China that needs to be beaten, or a kind of, you know, idea of us sort of trying to create a kind of a hegemon of Western liberalism, how do you frame it? It seems to me that if you talk in terms of conflict, you would stand a real risk of being self-defeating. Absolutely. The final thing is, I think what the debate today has proved is the problem that we have today with talking about China is a clash between our hearts and our minds. And that's the thing that we need to be wary of. I'm very, very attendant now to the idea of having kind of a big emotional response to China. I treat it like a very structural issue. And I think it's important for us to be very rational. And to be rational, that serves our self-interest. That serves all of our interests, including the people in China and elsewhere who are going to be involved if this goes wrong, whether it goes wrong in what we think is a right or a wrong way. 
And so I think my final words would be that engagement really supports a rational response, self-interest, and that's why you should, on this proposition, go with your mind, not your heart. That can be afterwards. Okay, thanks very much. So we have the results. The West should engage, not confront China. We have agree at 61%, disagree at 30%, don't know at 9%. This is a interestingly modest shift, but still quite a consequential one. We, we had 63% agreeing with the motion before, 21% disagreeing. We now have 61%, but critically, the undecideds have tipped in favor of disagreeing with the motion. As a result, this means I technically declare that even, even though the overall mood of the audience looks a little similar overall to where we started, Anastasia has done the more effective job in winning hearts and minds to her side of the motion. Uh, so congratulations uh, to, to her. And that brings us really to a conclusion. I'd like to thank Anastasia Lim, Carrie Brown, uh, Intelligence Squared Germany, my colleagues at uh, the European Council on Foreign Relations and uh, Stiftung Mercator for their support and you, the audience as well, um, for your excellent uh, questions. That concludes our debate. Thank you all very much.